right. Well, good morning and welcome. Hey, hey Jess, would you grab my Bible out of my bag? Yeah. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 4 this morning. We're going to get there, I promise. Let's pray. God, thank you that we're made a people because of through Acts, which is the story of Jesus. And we noted in Acts 1, Luke and Acts, if you're familiar with your Bible, were written by the same author, Luke. And it's this two-part series, if you would, or putting together of the story of Jesus, of all the things that he began to do and teach, and all the things that Jesus continues to do and teach through the Holy Spirit. And if you've been here for eight weeks or you've listened to the teachings that we've been working through, you've noticed we've talked a lot about the church. Because really what we see here is the formation, the birthing of this new grouping of people, this new temple of God that has been made because of Jesus. And so we've looked at who is the church and, well, we've looked at what is what was the church up to in those early days? And then we also saw how the church responds to inward and outward pressures. Yet a few weeks ago, we hit the pause button and we're talking about a healthy church. What is a healthy church? What does that look like? And what we did is we broke it down into three categories that we're going to get into here in just a moment. But when we talk about a healthy church, we're not looking at necessarily what a lot of people on the outside looking in may look at. Structure. Operations. We're not looking at the three Bs, butts, butts, and bricks, which is what a lot of churches look at to determine how healthy or great they're doing. What we're talking about in this moment is our ethos or ethos as a church. And if you want to throw this first slide up here, if you're not familiar with that word, here here is a definition to what I mean. The characteristic spirit of a culture, era, or community. Right, let me say that again. The characteristic spirit of a culture, era, community as displayed by its belief and behaviors. And so as we're examining what the church is, we're trying to define what makes up a healthy church. Then we're asking ourselves this question, do we as a church organization, how are we aligning with that and are we striving for it? And then as an individual, what does it look like to participate in this? And what we did is we broke it into what I called three buckets. So I've got lots of animals and kids, so there's buckets everywhere in my house and around it. And these three buckets that we looked at is when people are looking at the church, they look at three categories. You could have many, many more if you would like. I tried to break it down very simple for us. Heart church, hands church, head church. Last week, Carson talked about a hands church. Carson's phenomenal, right? Just did, man, he is excellent. Did an excellent job on what a hands church looks like. And that question we ask ourselves in that is, did I do something? We look at a head church, and when we come together with the people of God, we often find ourselves asking, did I learn something? And today, what we're going to kind of hone in on is this idea of heart church. 
And what people ask themselves, maybe before they even come to church or when they leave church, is, did I feel something? And so we've identified these three categories, and a few weeks back we filled those buckets up with the ideas behind each one of those, and we're going to break that down for us in a little bit on heart church, these three big ideas. But we do this in order to ask ourselves, am I, are we healthy? And what we noticed is often a church tends to lean into one or two buckets more than another. And we have to identify the areas in which maybe we're doing well in and continue to champion those, to keep the volume turned up on those, to continue to pursue those, but then have an honest heart look at ourselves as a church culture and the individuals who make up this church culture and ask ourselves, where do we need to turn the volume up? Or where are we not as healthy? You know, if you're into um, exercise and working out, you can work out all you want, but if you don't eat healthy, guess what? It's not going to do much for you. You'll do a little bit, but you'll become a little bit disproportionate and not physically feeling the way you ought to feel. Or if you're into the sports world and all you do is focus on offense but no defense, you ain't winning a championship unless you're the Chiefs, right? <laughs> they might with Mahomes. It's not healthy. Or if you're in the business world and you're really into social media and great at campaigning your business but your product is not of quality or you just have issues on getting it shipped out, all that advertising and getting exposure is not going to do you much if you're not healthy in all areas of your business. Are you, are you tracking with me on this? So we have to ask ourselves this question. Are we healthy? It's like going to the doctor. And this is the harsh reality. And he says, hey, hey you're doing, or she says, you're doing pretty good in this area. But if you want to truly be healthy as a person, feeling good, you need to make some changes in your life. And what will happen is you'll walk away from a doctor and there might be this aha moment. And then you go home and you internalize, well, I ain't going to do that. (laughs) They're telling me that I need to change my diet, change my exercise routine, do these things. And there's this internal struggle on whether or not you actually want to participate in what this expert is telling you to do who said, if you don't do this, your heart might stop. If you don't do this, the skin cancer might get worse. And we don't like their plan, and we fight it inwardly because we don't want to believe it. But then hopefully there's this moment of realization where you go, I need need to do this to be healthy. And Redeemers, that's where we're sitting at as a church right now. And we're talking about this morning, what is a heart church? Now, this should seem really obvious. But a heart church is defined by its love, one for another. A heart church is defined by its love, one for another. Let me read to you from John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you're to love one another. By this, all people, not just the people you like, all people, Not just the people who can serve you at the end of the day. All people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. A heart church, as we're going to see in the scriptures, 
as a church that's dedicated to relationship and community with one another, that invites people in to what I describe as this beautiful, messy thing called the temple of God or the church, who is selfless, and not only that, but has a heart to actually welcome people in. And this, this morning, can only be done by a community effort. The heart bucket, this idea of what a heart church looks like, is made up of people who are underneath the rule of God as ambassadors for Christ. And so I just want to flash this up here. You're seeing this. And these are some of the things that we might get to, might not get to, depending on time. But a heart church is dealing with emotions, which are good, and it's okay to have emotions. And the church should welcome emotions without getting into emotionalism. Feelings, affections, spiritual experiences. When you come amongst the people of God, you're going to desire that passion, inner self, connection, and community. I want those things for our church. And we ask ourselves, what does it look like to feel something when I leave this place or I'm sitting in this place? What's that actually going to look like? It's going to look like love. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. The church is formed. Evangelism is happening. Jesus' name is being proclaimed. And it says in 432, now the full number of those disciples, or of those who believed, were of one heart and one soul. And no one said that any of these things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. All right. When we look at this scripture... And according to this idea of what is a heart church, you see this early church participating in a deep sense of love and care one for another. And so we're just going to take this idea of what is our ethos, what is going to make us up as a people, what characteristic, what major value. As you survey Acts, you see that they are a people who are distinctly marked by God's love. And if we're going to be a heart church, it needs to begin in this place. Let me read some quotes to you. Uh, Anybody familiar with Bob Goff? Yeah, he wrote a book called Love Does. Yeah, Love Does. Okay, and in this book, I think you can kind of get the idea just from the title of what love is about. But these are some things that Goff said in that book. That's because love is never stationary. In the end, love doesn't just keep thinking about it or keep planning for it. Simply put, love does. Here's another quote. But the kind of love that God created and demonstrated is a costly one because it involves sacrifice and presence. It's a love that operates more like a sign language than being spoken outright. Okay? Highlight, think about these ideas of sacrifice and presence and action because that's what love does. 
And as Jesus said, you're going to be known by your love one for another. So as we look at what Goff wrote, we can take away three points. Love this morning is not stationary. It is active. James talks about the idea of faith and works. And in this idea of faith and works, he says if somebody comes to your home and it's 25 degrees out like it was this morning and they're in need of a coat and you say, go and be warm and be filled up and close your door and send them on your way, that was not an act of love, was it? He says, actually, something should be connected with those words of go and be warm in the actual action of giving a coat or food. Love does something. Not only that, love then is present. It is our presence involved in one another's lives. And love is sacrifice. It's going to be costly. And so that's great. I love that Goff wrote that. Does it match up? with the life of Jesus, the early church, and the history of the church. Let's just consider Jesus. This idea of not just action, but presence. What does John 1 say? That the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. That he himself is present with humanity in their messiness, in their brokenness, in their joy, in their sorrow, that Jesus came and sat with sinners of whom I am chiefest of, as even Paul would say. And he then invites us into his life. Jesus came and was present in this place. Not that he sacrificed. I mean, we can talk about numerous passages, but it is Jesus who lays down his life to invite us into his life. In the early church, if we take a quick survey, did the church practice presence? You can read through Acts 2 through 5, 2 through 6, constantly gathering together in one another's homes, breaking bread, praying with each other, meeting each other's needs. They then served and gave of what they had. They were sacrificially loving one another. They were present with one another, involved in each other's lives. Well, that's great. That's the early church. First generation Jesus followers, of course they were like that. There's this amazing letter from about second, third century to Diognetus, written by Matthias, which means a disciple. And this letter that was written and circulated says this, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or some outlandish way of life. Their teaching is not based upon reveries inspired by the curiosity of men. Unlike some other people, they champion no purely human doctrine with regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general. They follow customs of what city they happen to be living in, whether it's Greek or foreign, and yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their role as citizens but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, But for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. It's a really interesting line. We'll get into that someday. They live in flesh, 
but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. Condemned because they are not understood, they are put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. They suffer dishonor, but that is their glory. They are defamed, but vindicated. A blessing is their answer to abuse. Deference the response to insult. For the good they do, they receive the punishment of malefactors. But even they rejoice as though receiving the gift of life. They are attacked by the Jews as aliens. They are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. And this letter goes on to talk about their love and spite of all the pain and suffering that comes their way. This is second, third century. This church is known by love. It's awesome. How about us, Redeemers? This is where the rubber kind of hits the road, and I want to share a story to illustrate this for us this morning. When I was 19, and I didn't want to go to college anymore, like every good 19-year-old, hopped in my truck, was going to move to Seattle and work for a family friend. On my way to Seattle, I stopped off with some friends in a little town called Gresham, right? That nice dark hole on the other side of the hill. If you know, you know. And my friends were going to Mount Hood Community College, and I spent the night with them and had a great time hanging out with them, and then decided I'd stay another night because I didn't want to go to Seattle yet. And then the next morning on my way out to Seattle, I stopped off at a Starbucks and asked if they were hiring, and they hired me on the spot. So like a 19-year-old excited Christian, I went, this must be the hand of God. A 19-year-old getting a job at a Starbucks, crazy. So I decided to stay in Gresham. I get an apartment, and I begin to work, and not too far away, I have a friend or an acquaintance that about 10 years ago, he was my youth pastor, and he'd started a church called Athey Creek, and I met with this guy, pastor of this church, that was pretty large at that time, 750 to 1,000, and he takes time out of his day, and he introduces me to some people, and I start going to this church. It's great. It's awesome. I'm not meeting anybody. I've tried, but I'm going to this church. And one day, um, our very own Michael Watson, who had been living in Portland at the same time, he calls me up and he goes, hey, Brett, I heard you're living up here um, in the Portland area. Not Portland, because Gresham is not Portland. The Portland area. And he invites me to this small study of, of guys that my previous, or post from that youth pastor, youth pastor started, I had lots of youth pastors. So I go to this night, and I spend time with these people, and I go home, and then they invite me to their church. And it's a church plant of about 300 people. They've been growing. God's been doing great things among them. And I show up, and that same night I showed up, they invited me out to dinner. And then at dinner, another family invited me out to Thanksgiving just three weeks away. And then the next day, I get a phone call. And they say, hey, Brett, do you want to hang out? Do you want to spend time with us? And I was so blown away by the love and care of this church. It was not, listen to me, it was not the pastor or the pastoral staff. They didn't even know I showed up. 
It was the people in the church. And I can remember going back to Brett, who was my pastor at that time. And I said, Brett, I love you. I love what I'm hearing at this church. The worship is great. But I want to tell you something. I'm not going to continue to come here. Do you know why? Because of the hospitality, kindness, love that these people welcome me in. It wasn't the leaders. It was the people. Redeemers, this is very important for us. Because in that moment, I can tell you, I chose a church. The one time in my life when I actually chose a church, because I've planted two now, I chose a church not because of preaching, which is what we spend a lot of time doing in here. Not because of music, not because of everything else going on around, but because I was welcomed and accepted and loved. You see, If you can't hear it yet, this is what I want us as a heart church to be. I want us to be a group of people that by the time somebody comes forward to meet me or meet Perry in the back or meet Carson when he's done teaching, one of the elders in the church or somebody who's visibly serving in the church and they've already been invited to a group, they've already been invited out to lunch, they've already met people because we are a church that isn't just friendly, isn't just kind, isn't just kind of warm and fuzzy feeling, but we're welcoming, inviting, and embracing people. That's my heart for our church. That's what it looks like. In order to do that, we have to get it into our minds that we need to be a people who are present with one another and are okay with the idea of sacrifice, giving of ourselves. I truly think and feel, and I'm just done with that, I truly think and feel going forward, our church and churches in general, we've moved past this intellectual boom. We've got the Tim Kellers and C.S. Lewis's of the world, and I can intellectually sit down with each and every one of you and talk about who Jesus is and why intellectually there aren't these massive hurdles to trust and believe in Jesus. But because of the harm that we've all experienced and is put on public display through social media over the last 15, 20 years, the pain and suffering from churches abusing, hurting, and harming people, the church has this horrific shame attached to it right now. And so when you talk about, I go to church, people are a little bit reserved and pulled back and they don't want to have much to do with it because they have a story of, I went to that church and they were not kind. They were not loving. They rejected me when I was in deep need. They turned their backs on me just because I didn't agree with them on some doctrinal points. And I think when God moves, because God moves periodically in magnificent, wonderful ways. We call them revivals in church language. The next movement's going to happen in churches who, yes, preach Jesus as Lord, who, yes, have their hands involved in the community, but are willing and ready to embrace the next wave of hurting people in spite of the taboo sins, the things that kind of make us go like this, in spite of all the baggage they bring in, but being a people, being a people who are ready to receive and welcome. 
I hope, I pray, this gets into us. Now, there's something really interesting as we get ready to close out. We've talked about and described the church as a people, the temple of God. And I know we've probably all been in churches where we want to feel some kind of movement, whether it's through the music and I feel emotionally attached to what God is doing or this preacher, he can get really excited and raise his voice and have it be really fun for us and then tone it down. And if you're on the outside, you can be like, that's manipulation. (laughs) Sometimes we've created systems in the church that make it to where you have to come one Sunday to be filled up because we know you're going to be empty throughout the rest of the week, so you better come back and get your Sunday fix in order to be hyped on Jesus again. That's not my desire for our church. But I will say this. You want to come and feel something and experience something? This is unique. This is special. When you look at the Holy Spirit filling the church, it's God's presence with them. I've taught this long ago in the past. There's an Old Testament story about a man named Jacob, and he's just a horrible dude. Rips his brother off, is on the run, out in the middle of nowhere in a little place called Luz, in which he takes a nap and has this dream where there's these angels ascending and descending. And he wakes up in the morning and he goes, truly God was in this place and I didn't know it. He calls the place Bethel, house of God. Now I was re-listening to Tim Mackey, much better speaker than me, talk about this this last week. And he brought up just this incredible observation on this text. He said, wherever the presence of God is, it's basically heaven on earth, right? God's presence. That's what we want to feel. That's what we want to connect to. And he said, look at Jacob. He was in a barren wasteland, and he wakes up, and all of a sudden he knows and realizes God was in that place. A lot of times we can come to church, and we're like this, and we're wondering, is God going to move, or is God going to show up? Can I tell you something? God is in this place. How do I know? Acts 4 says the Spirit of God filled every believer where the presence of God is. In those people, that's where God is. What does the Bible tell you and me? You are the temple of God. If God is indwelling us as a people, God is here in this place. How do we feel something? How do I walk away going, did I feel something? As Christians interact with those outside of here and with one another, we are ambassadors, our image bearers of Christ. And as we show love one to another, that is God's presence in our church and in our life. I just think it's a phenomenal thought process. What that means is you can't walk into a church which is truly a church who loves, proclaims the name of Jesus, worshiping him, and interact with one another without truly being in God's presence. No, the music may or may not move you today. No, the preaching may or may not be a 10. It may have been a three. But God is in this place. And sometimes we need to open our eyes and look around the room and go, because we're image bearers and he's filled us, God is with us.
So what does this mean for us as we go from here? The kids downstairs, you can start being brought back up. What does this mean for us? Get it into our minds. Get it into our heads that church is not just about this moment on Sunday, but we as the people of God going from here, from this place, are representing him to the world, representing him to Redmond, to Bend, to Prineville, to Matters, to Culver. We're representing who he is, and we're to be inviting people into that life. How are we doing with that? At Redeemers, we've had seasons where we've done really well of being welcoming, inviting, embracing. And then COVID hits, right? And everybody's like, I get all my friendships from social media. <laughs> when you have four kids and sports and work and a side hustle, you go home and you put on your sweats and the last thing you want to do is go back out and be with people. It's a problem. It's a bad habit that we've developed because God is inviting us actually into a life of community with one another and then to invite others into that. Redeemers, let's move towards that. Let's get back to that place where you can't walk into this building without being invited to something. They may say no. They probably will say no. But be persistent. Be loving. Pursue one another and spend time with each other. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Church would be a church that loves so well and that we'd be known for our love in this community and it would shoot out in all kinds of different ways. In ministries and helps and mission, but you'd be at the center of it and people would be drawn in because of your goodness, your kindness, your love. In Jesus' name, amen. And I want you to stand with us. Kids, as you're coming up, you can find your parents. Uh, we're going to sing a couple of songs here this morning. The tables are open if you're a follower. sharing a meal really outside of a marriage kind of relationship was one of the most intimate moments you could have in ancient culture. Bringing somebody into your home and having presence with each other. Sacrificing as you open up what you maybe butchered that day or got from the marketplace and sitting down and spending prolonged time drinking, eating, laughing, crying. And this is a small portion of what that represents. It is all about Jesus and who Jesus has made us. And when we take communion, it's not just this isolated thing with you and God. It's not less than that. But look around the room, it's certainly more than that. These people that you work with, play with, fight with, cry with, have had issues with, have come together and said, we are followers of Jesus. And in his greatest act of love, gave himself for us. And we declare him as king. And we celebrate that here as a church family this morning. We're gonna give Jesus thanks for what he has done in our lives. 
But this is not just a momentary thing that we do on a Sunday. It then goes into lunchtime and this evening and throughout the week. As he demonstrated his love for us, we are now restored image bearers, demonstrating that to the world around us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you came and dwelt among us. Your presence come, God in the flesh. Thank you for the life that you lived that we could not live. Thank you for the death that you died that we deserved. Thank you for standing in our place in order to make us a people living, playing, rejoicing, weeping in this here but not yet kingdom that you've made us a part of. We say thank you that your life in exchange for ours, your blood in exchange for ours, you've covered us and made us whole and restored and renewed. We just take this moment to say, yes, we've been broken, but we know who we are in Jesus Christ. Whole, forgiven, righteous, sanctified, justified, loved. And so we say thank you. Thank you for your body that was broken and thank you for your blood that was poured out. Let's take the body and the cup together. We're gonna sing one more song here and then close out.